Welcome to Deadly Discussions, a podcast on social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Isaac Harrison. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the uh, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, on whose land we are recording today. Today, I have Andrew Keast. Um, Andrew is a good friend of mine that I've met through friends of friends at a pub, I think it was, or a restaurant. Couldn't make my mind what uh, that place up on Chapel Street is. Um, and since then, we've uh, crossed paths many different ways in, the, in more of the social inclusion, social procurement side of Victorian government's um, works or projects that are happening all the time where they've got targets to employ more Indigenous people, more people that are socially disadvantaged. Uh, we've got skilled migrants. We've got uh, veterans in construction, disabilities, uh, which Andrew will share on. So thanks for coming on, Andrew. Oh, fantastic, Isaac. It's really uh, great to, to be a part of your uh, podcast. Thanks no, for the invitation. No worries at all. So I hope I gave you justice there. It's hard to put a finger on what you do because I know you do many different things, um, all good. And so yeah. why don't you open up with um, you know some of your upbringing and you know, where you're from and what brought you to where you are today? Yeah, great. Uh, so I'm uh, Melbourne, born and bred. Um, uh, yeah, been... Uh, Travelling around the world, but Melbourne, Melbourne's very much home. Um, I'm uh, got a couple of um, brother and a sister, yeah. um, and uh, went to school here in Melbourne. Um, very fortunate. My parents had a property uh, farm north of Melbourne that I spent quite a bit of time yeah, on as a wow. child up near the uh, Cathedral Ranges. Yeah, okay. Um, so I spent uh, quite a bit of my time on the on the land, and my grandmother had a. Um, she, married a potato farmer down in Gippsland so um, yeah very fortunate to kind of live between the, the city and the country and um, yep. it was a full on working farm that I <clears throat> grew on grew up on with um, cattle and sheep and yeah well um, so there's definitely no slacking off growing up oh absolutely not no my parents were um, absolute workaholics and yep. um, and uh, yeah certainly picked up on some of that um, that work ethic so um yeah, um, never, never a dull moment in the Keast household as a child. Yeah, um, well, and where do you think yeah. some of that that working ethic came from? Um, my father was um, uh, grew up in um, fairly um, disadvantaged circumstances, I suppose. Yep. He was um, uh, has a single mother from um, quite early on. Yeah, well, um, and. Um, yeah, kind of um, struggled. He ended up getting a, a scholarship to school and then a scholarship yeah. to study medicine. And um, yeah, had some really, really amazing lucky breaks. But it wasn't. Yeah. It was you know through um, sort of perseverance. So I think yeah. that certainly his sort of work ethic rubbed off on me a little. Yeah, and I like what you just said there. It was lucky breaks, but perseverance. And there's a saying that I love, um, which is from Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, which probably not the best thing for your your health but um and that's um luck is a, a dividend of sweat the the harder you work the luckier you get and um yeah i love that because as you know like you can get lucky breaks or look for an opportunity or handout but you still got to work hard at the end of the day yeah and i think often the the how the work ethics translated for me is um it doesn't necessarily mean doing certain work in certain area delivers results in that area. It might yep. be in a completely different area, but it's sort of the the application of the ethic then opens up doors in in, a, in potentially a whole lot of different avenues as well. And 
yep. that's really kind of led me down the, the sort of social enterprise space, I suppose. Yeah, I um, love it. It's yeah. sort of, it is like sort of scaling a mountain. You sort of have intention, oh, I'm going to climb that mountain. But as you're going up, you're finding new trails and new lookouts and you're looking over there and go, oh, what's over there? And I think that opportunity opens more opportunity. And um, yeah, yeah, you just never know if you don't, if you don't go. I, I definitely didn't think I would end up in a more of a social um, entrepreneurship um, role with my business but now I have to do everything that has um, I was thinking about the yesterday I was saying well an entrepreneur sees an opportunity and he creates value around that and then people you know pay him uh, money for that and that's how business has started and then he moves on but I'm like a social entrepreneur sees a disadvantage and an opportunity blended together and then he does the same thing he builds a business around that opportunity uh, money comes in money comes out and then people are not just um reunited for their what they've done but then also the social um disadvantages addressed whether that's poverty or whether that's um you know any sort of ethical dilemma so no exciting yeah. that's a beautiful way of putting it actually the um, um marrying of the, the the disadvantage with the with the opportunity i think that's um that's beautiful yeah and it does it sort of gets us all out of bed and i think a lot of people now are sort of tying because back in the day you talk about the farming you know sustenance farming where they had um, all different crops and animals on the property and just sort of trading buying and trading as you go what you needed and um it was always tied back to some sort of reality like if you don't mm-hmm. buy a trade, you won't be having dinner. <laughs> so, yeah, and I think yeah. now people go and enlist and they work the 40, 45 hours, 50 hours a week and they get money in a bank and it's all just like impersonal now. It's all cold. Mm. There's not really a tie to anything uh, mm. real and that mm. just goes on for years now. And I think what social entrepreneurship and a lot of the social procurement stuff is tying it into real results that um, a strong economy, um, you know, will break down and, and eliminate a lot of those... Um, the really poor um, circumstances people find themselves in. Yeah, yeah. I think another aspect of my experience on the land has just been the the somewhat brutal nature of the land. You know that you're yeah. the, the, the whim and the mercy of the of the weather, and, and yep. there's so many so many variables. And I think a lot of our urban life looks to minimise those variables, but it also minimizes our experience to the to the to the to nature and what it what it's um intended to to give us if we um yes. if we look after it so yeah definitely we you know i believe in the seasons um and the cooler nation down here talk about the six seasons and you know there's times when the season ends you know winter winter's come you know there's no longer planting and then harvesting um, and, and there's just times to do different things at different seasons. You know, summer, you're not going to be walking around clothed in possum skins. It's too hot. And I think we have removed that reality from our daily lives that we say, oh, it's just going to be the same every day when the all of the, the earth around us is constantly changing and moving and shifting and we need to shift with it. Um, but, yeah it's, yeah, it's interesting. So let's go into... So your story, your, your father, you grew up in Melbourne, so you're probably biased. Melbourne's the best capital city in, uh, in Australia. <laughs> yeah, somewhat, although, as I mentioned, I've done a lot of uh, travel around the, the world, so I actually lived in London for four years. So yeah. after going to school here, I went to um, Monash Uni and I yep. studied psychology, philosophy and music, yep. um, which was uh, um, really very much my passion. My, I grew up in a family that was very focused on on the sciences and yep. medicine, um, yeah, wow. medicine, yeah, wow, um, and never 
really connected in with that world. In fact, yep. I ended up repeating year 11 because um, wow. my father had sort of streamed me into sciences and I just didn't, I didn't get it. Yeah. Um, and um, focused on, yeah, my music and the arts and, um, and my sort of inquiry into, you know, those sort of deeper existential yep. questions yep. Um, and, um, you know, questions of, of why we're here and the psyche and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. that sort of took me off into that world and then, Went and lived in London for four years and, and fell into human resources and recruitment over there, which was kind of yep. what, what sort of led me to do the work that I do today. So, Yeah, wow. That would be very interesting. And what you're saying where your, your father comes from a very science numbers background and you've mm. gone, well, you know, my I'm trying to get it, but I just don't get it. It reminds me in the same school I was, I just couldn't get why we had to learn certain things. Like I understood yeah. why they were teaching it, but I was just like, where am I going to use this in my everyday data life? Like, <laughs> uh, I remember in particular trigonometry, I, the teacher asked me to leave because I said I wasn't going to fire any artillery miss, so um, yeah. I don't need to learn this. And then she was like, please leave the room. Um, and it was just, and I think a lot of people grow up that, especially if you've come from different cultural backgrounds where you're sort of, you're comparing, you're not comparing apples and apples, you've got apples and oranges and you're sort of knowing there's different worlds out there and being more culturally aware. Yeah. And like you said, you you then travelled overseas, um, mm. and then spent time in London. So you're up in HR. So I, most people I talk to, they said they didn't expect to end up in HR, didn't want to end up in HR. <laughs> yeah. um, so tell me how that started. Was it like, oh, I need a job, so I'm going to go work in HR? Or yeah, no. It's actually I was working in um, catering here in um, uh, in Melbourne before I left. Yeah. Um, back in the late 80s and then uh, while I was at university and then the recession hit in the early 90s and oh. it was time to um, uh, spread my wings yep. and um, experience London. And in fact, very fortuitously, I won a trip for two to Fiji for two weeks. No um, way. As a raffle. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, while I was saving to travel and it turned out that I was able to cash that in for a return trip to London. So, yeah, wow. Um, uh, talking of um, sort of serendipitous events, and yeah, that really cool. allowed me to experience, um, you know, all that London had to offer, um, both from a catering perspective in my work, and then yeah. moving into human resources. It was actually in catering, so I was recruiting chefs and cooks, and working as a um, working as a silver service waiter and a butler. For yeah, wow, <laughs> butler, London, which was quite experience, yeah. including serving the royal family. Wow. <laughs> So what happens when yeah. they see the butler and they go up to you and they're expecting a, a very posh English accent and you're like, yeah, mate, the food's <laughs> over there. Yeah. I oh, think God. it was a bit of a novelty, to be honest. Um, but I think one of the really interesting things was um, really understanding the class system of London um, oh, okay. was actually really um, confronting for me. Yeah, wow. Um, because there is this, or well, there was sort of this real upstairs, downstairs mentality there. Yep. Um, if you're a, um, a waiter, you're not sort of considered worthy in a yeah. lot of respects. Especially um, if you're from one of the colonies, such as exactly. yourself. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, whereas, you know, in mainland Europe, you know, in France and, and yep. Italy, it's considered a revered profession. Um, so I found that really quite quite challenging. Um, yeah, two sides, isn't it, over there? Yeah, but moved into, um, yeah, human resource recruitment there, yep. and that was really kind of my foray into that, and then... Um, then went off travelling for um, a little over a year, basically overland from from London to Australia. Yeah, um, and I guess sort of adds to my. 
story of why I do what I do now. I ended up traveling through Pakistan, China, Tibet, Nepal, wow. um, Thailand, Indonesia, yep. um, Turkey, um, literally, literally overland and um, experienced a lot of um, disadvantage and, um, and met a lot of refugees in my travels as well. So, yep. um, Which will tie yeah, into our, our, our next one nice. about your business and what you're currently doing now. Um, on that final note, on your story in the class system, we were talking at dinner last night, my mother-in-law, so she's uh, predominantly Anglo, grew up in Geelong, middle class, father owned the butcher shop. And um, we were talking and, and my wife said, um, wait a cotton picking minute. And then she, th- then she stopped herself and thought and said, I got a feeling that's racist or racial overtones. And I said, well, obviously, I said, because you the African-American slaves were out there picking cotton, had to do it fast, otherwise you'd get whipped. And um, we're like, wow. And we stopped there. And uh, a, my wife's mother um, from Junk, she's like, oh, I've said that since growing up. I've just thought that's normal. And I was just like, well, when you think about it, the historic context. And then we started Googling um, sayings that have just been used by the Western um, society. And there's like heaps. There's like no can do comes from a Chinese um like illustration in the 20s where they're saying that Chinese Americans couldn't speak English. <coughs> Sorry. So they say no can do. Because they and there was like a, like completely a lot that would sit there Googling and going, wow, I can't believe how there's so many. And um, society is like that. Even like when you bought a plane, there's when they used to have first class and then economy. <laughs> it's like they're the first class of people and then the economy and then the people change it to business class. And then economy. But yeah, it's very interesting how much is ingrained in our society to come down from this centralized, this is the empire, and here's all the colonies, you know, mm-hmm. and then um, we're all out here doing our thing and we, we're feeding tax and money income back to the central empire. So, you know, and that's, I think, for Indigenous people, we've been caught because our elders have seen, like, well, that's the setup, right? Like everyone's, yeah. the queen comes over, they go crazy, they go mental. Um, and so Aboriginal people are like, well, I don't really want to part with, you know, any part of that. So let's tie it into your next one. So lots of immigrants, lots of, um, I'm sure, traveling around, you're seeing a lot of poverty, a lot of devastation. And that's led you to start what you're doing today. You want to share a bit about that? Yeah. So um, some three years ago, um, I met my co-founders in Refugee Talent. So we're um, a social enterprise connecting refugees with employment opportunities across yep. the country. Um, yep. So we, we recognised that there was a, um, a sort of fragmentation in the way that we approach um, the refugee issue here in Australia. There are yep. a lot of different settlement agencies. There's lots of different um, job active providers and other providers yep. supporting refugees in various ways, but there's no national platform that's connecting refugees with employment opportunities across the country. And yep. so, um, yeah, we created a platform three and a half years ago um, that basically captures that information and allows refugees and migrants to manage their own online profile. Yep. Um, and it's really intended to raise the visibility of their you know, remarkable skills and experience and qualifications and, and aspirations. Um, And then being able to connect um, that information and those people with with, um, job opportunities across the country. That's awesome. um, So it'd be like a a Facebook for job-seeking refugees. 
Yeah, it's sort of a combination between sort of a job board, sort of seek and LinkedIn and Facebook type of approach. Um, yeah. But rather than refugees or migrants applying for hundreds of jobs and not hearing anything back, which is kind of the typical experience of some of the generalist job yes. boards, yeah. they're able to manage their own profile and through that um, get the visibility with the employers that can sign up to the platform at, um, and and, um, and search that data. So Yeah, yeah. wow. Wow. Um, I think that's so important because you would also provide that, that cultural safety as well. Um, people coming from these countries, if they were to walk down to a generic service, you know, job service provider and you've walked in and you've seen sort of just an Australian, they're like, yeah, how can I help you? Yeah, all right, do this course and sit over here and do that and we'll get you mm-hmm. a job. Like, And you've just come from seeing death and devastation and... <laughs> hearing gunshots in the middle of the night and explosions. Like, it's a completely different world, and I understand where you've you've come from to say, oh, we can provide that safety zone for starters and then invite people in to have that conversation. Is that sort of the mentality behind it? Yeah, that's certainly part of it. But what we're sort of predominantly focused on is, is, is I guess, economic participation. So yeah. um, I guess one of the, the rights that we've kind of identified is that... that um, uh, all right that we all have to to participate both socially and yeah. and economically in in our community, and that um, it's all very well that someone settles here and we're supporting them from yeah. um, you know housing and from a schooling perspective, but unless they're connected into other um, aspects of our community and, and in particular the economic participation, then yeah. they're really not going to be able to have that sense of of independence and yeah. freedom that, and ownership. That, that we all enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's. I think that's very important. Um, and it's a little bit different now when you come to Australia. You think about the migrants that came during the snowy, snowy hydro. Um, in the early days, you had the 10-pound palms. You had after World War Two. you know, Australia was putting out that they were desperate for um, professionals of any sort. And New Zealand was putting out advertisements for labourers of any sort. Um, but mm. now, when you come over, um, even people here are still struggling to find jobs. There's the gig economy. Um, what what are some of the biggest challenges you find with some of the um, the refugees that come over and want to start working, but they just don't know where to begin? Yeah, look, part of it is just where 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 do they put their information? How do they connect with employers? A lot of yep. them aren't familiar with the ways of of you know how we typically network. How do we find jobs? And yep. and also some of the channels that they're using um, aren't aren't effective yep. for them. Um, so. And then there's um, levels of unconscious and conscious bias, um, and there's plenty of research around this globally, but yeah, um, it's also here in Australia that, you know, where there's, there's biases around um, people's names, there's biases oh, around yes. qualifications, yes, um, yes. you know, not, not having local experience, you know, there's all those sorts of things. So yep. part, part of our role and part of my role specifically as... Um, a storyteller for refugee talent is, is 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 confronting some of those biases and challenging people around our own biases. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. I remember um, first having a trip to China for for work many years ago, and everyone we meet had a had a, a Western name, and I was like, why do people have Western names? And they've done that to be able to communicate with the West. Because if they see a, a, a Chinese name, they're like, oh, this person's trying to sell me or this person wants something. And the same thing we've had other um, employees that I've worked for back in the day that see a name that had you know, eight syllables because it comes from Southeast Asia or um, overseas or it's Vietnamese or it's Indian. And there was already a bias, you know. 
Oh, do they yeah. speak English correctly? Oh, what does their actual qualifications mean? And and they would actually get no chance to come and prove themselves. And um, I think that's definitely unfair and needs to change. And so um, I even grow up with um, ticking the Indigenous box on forms. You know, I'd be like, why do I have to tick this box? You know, what what information, you know, is it going to work for my benefit or work against me? And um, so most times, you know, I... Um, I did tick it, but sometimes when I actually wanted a job, I would hesitate and not um, tick that box because cool. I just worried about that small percentage of that person having a bias against Aboriginal people. So, um, yeah. And it's all true. It's, on, it's all come from um, real, like you said, facts and statistics where how Australia's evolved over the last couple of decades. Yeah, there are, there are bias. There are the inside-out mentality where anyone new comes over Australia, they're, you know, ah, oh, you just got here fresh off the boat, when in reality, all Australians got off the boat, um, especially the first, yeah. first, second and uh, third fleet. So, um, yeah. yeah, so it's interesting. So that's some of the challenges you face. What, what do you think the future looks like? Obviously, uh, I think uh, Daniel Andrew Scomo are very interested in bringing in more uh, migrants and, and refugees. Um, where does that sort of place you over the next uh, 10, 20 years? Yeah, well, I guess there's a couple of aspects of that. One is we really feel that there's a, a bigger opportunity to influence the um, the broader um, narrative within the community, and that yep. includes the political narrative as well. Um, so, you know, we do spend a bit of time um, presenting information in yep. in Canberra and other um, political environments to, to show them the value that refugees can bring to the community yep. um, and, and particularly, give, I guess, given the current government, the economic value that they can deliver in, in participating yep. and that, um, that we don't need to view <coughs> refugees as a, a burden to the community because they're not. Yep. Um, and that we all have, you know, extraordinary skills and qualifications and experience that's able to add value to the community. So part of our our role, we see, is, is longer term, is, is is influencing policy around yep. um, those sorts of things. Um, and you know, we're we're being invited to the table to contribute to that conversation. So that's really exciting. Um, yeah, definitely. There's obviously, um, other other bigger. Um, questions that are going on politically that are, that are influencing policy at the moment, but yep. just um, chipping away at that. And, and longer term, you know, we, I guess ultimately we'd like to see that we don't, we don't need to exist in some yeah, regards, right. that, that it's, it's kind of business as usual that we, we are considering everyone based on their skills, experience and qualifications and, and, and not and aware of our biases to the extent that everyone's given an appropriate opportunity. So, yeah, and yeah. Is it, is, I was kind of wondering, is there any support around, so someone comes over, they've got, you know, a double PhD and they, they come over from, you know, Ethiopia and they want to go on the same field here, but they realise mm-hmm. they can't because it doesn't um, translate over from another country, their qualifications. Is there support in government funding around putting that person into a university so they can add a few final touches and then get into the workforce or it's sort of not there, there yet? Yeah, there is there is some. Um I think one of the one of the biases that exist yep. is is the the claim that someone needs local qualifications in order to practice here. And yep. and obviously in some regards that's important if we take medicine as an example. Yeah, um but in a lot of instances, you know, we're placing people into um, you know, highly skilled roles, accountants, engineers, yep. Yep. Um, project managers, um, HR professionals, and they're able to work alongside um, Australian qualified people who are yep. able to sign off on their work. So yeah, it's not good. like they can't actually do the work. 
and that's part of the the work that we're doing more broadly is to say where where did this story of having to have Australian qualifications come from yeah. given the, the global context that we now live in and um, starting to challenge that and 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 realise that we actually have massive opportunities and gaps within the yeah I was um, going to say there would probably be great benefit from having someone from another country come over look at like in engineering especially if you're designing something and the person going questions are why did you design like that why didn't you try xyz and having the local australian go oh wow i never thought about that you know i could definitely see that value being added that's right i mean you take some of the infrastructure projects and some of the work that we're we're both doing in our work um is you know that there's speaking to an hr manager the other day saying that she literally loses sleep at the announcement the next victorian government announcement that yeah. he made around an infrastructure project because she's thinking where am i going to find these engineers from yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um you know that's sort of a, a perfect um i guess storm in some regards that you know yeah. we're able to um take um the you know social um procurement framework and social inclusion frameworks and, and policy and um and and provide a, some some of the answers to yeah. that. But, yeah, yeah, and it's it's you know a lot of people another bias would be it's too hard it's too hard to train people and I just want someone ready to start now and I think that's just a massive you know fallacy because at the end of the day you still got to train people you got to bring them into your culture yeah. your workplace and you've got to make them feel comfortable at home and we had a uh, one guy called Asan he he joined us uh, Pakistan he was electrical engineer a um, little bit of training he was up and running and he was so good that um, um, AMO the Australian regulatory body um, actually offered him a job and he uh, wow. left us so um, wow. I was like sad but then I was like happy for him <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. but that's like that's the potential like there are some absolute gems out there you know amount of Uber drivers that I have and they're um, you know got PhDs um, you know electrical engineering mechanical engineering or IT and they're driving mm. around um, you know Uber and it's just like and the desires can't find the place so my biggest passion yeah. yeah is trying to make that room for these skilled migrants and the other thing is well that, they'll work so hard to keep mm-hmm. that job and that opportunity that you give to them because in their mind there's no turning back you know there's no just like oh I'll just go back home because home that doesn't exist anymore that bridge has been burnt and yeah. so they have to make it work here in Australia and that's just something you can't um, you can't buy yeah that's exactly right and I think um, yeah their, their their work ethic coming back to the work ethic is, is, is enormous and what we're finding now I guess to your question of where do we see things going is that just in the last three years we've seen a massive shift and a welcoming by employers to um to engaging with refugees and migrants more broadly and and wanting to (coughs) reflect their their culture internally as a reflection of the community um externally Um, and that's really really encouraging one of the great stories i love telling is one of the first placements we made with a major infrastructure provider here in melbourne was a Referred a woman in for a, a job as a receptionist, and she had a data yeah. management degree from Iran, I think. And yeah. within the first fifteen minutes of the interview, the interviewer said, "Oh no, look, you're worth far more than that for us. We're going to create a role for you in our yeah, organisation." Wow. So they're, they're the sort of they're the sort of opportunities that we're really looking at creating. So yeah, no, that's that's very exciting. So I look forward to hearing more and seeing more. And uh, what about you personally? In the next five, ten years, are you still? Um, working through refugee talent the storyteller or are you traveling yeah, look, again <laughs> uh, always traveling always traveling um i um see myself working with refugee talent um i work with, across a number of other projects yep. in both social 
um, and environmental space. So yeah. I'm really interested in um, the industrial hemp sector um, yeah. and also in um, uh, social housing and working on a project out of Europe called Fair b and at the moment. Um, Fair b yeah, yeah, so changing the um, kind of um, rather extractive nature of some of the other um, providers in that space. Um, yep. So they've just launched in um, in Europe uh, in the last six months and, um, yeah, looking at setting up a, a local node of that organisation here in Australia. So Yeah, wow. Is I, there a link I, I, I can put on the um, the post for today? Because I'll put one Yeah, up. yeah. Um, I'll send you the link. Um, and, um yeah, that's a um, really exciting, exciting project and um, very much in its infancy. But I'm, I guess as a... Um, as you call me a social entrepreneur, I'm, I love lots yeah. of different projects across lots of different sectors and to see all the, the interconnections between all of those. So, yeah. Exciting. No worries. Thank you so much, uh, Andrew, for coming on. And uh, look Thank forward you. to catching up in the future and, and seeing how Fair B&B is uh, progressing in refugee talent. Wonderful. Excellent. Thanks, Isaac. No worries. Thanks, Great man. chatting to you. Talk soon. Thanks. See you.